Welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 128. French forces arrive and fail. The spring of 1405 had been an ugly one for the Prince of Wales and his nation. They lost a series of battles which created the first major reversals of fortune for the Welsh since the war began. Within that time frame, much of the gains that had been made were now in jeopardy as King Henry VIII and his son started to push the Welsh back. They started by making progress in the southeast in Monmouth and Glamorgan. In the end of the spring, Anglesey was raided by the English, and among many things that were taken, relics from churches within the island were stolen, and the defenders fled back to Llyn to avoid further issues and problems. The only thing that likely saved the Welsh from more successive series of setbacks was the aborted northern uprising in May, as that forced King Henry to send forces north to once again stop him from capitalizing on his successes in Wales. Once he had that area to hand, he had a new issue that now arrived in August. The French expeditionary force, led by some of the most experienced commanders, landed in the southwest Wales, bringing with them highly trained and experienced men from years of fighting in the One Hundred Years' War, some with connections that may have even gone back to Owen the Red Hand himself. 1405 had seen the French launch a two-pronged assault on the English. The first, at Calais, saw them besiege the English castle at Merckx in May. That attack went pretty much nowhere, as the English defeated them pretty easily. Effectively, the siege backfired on the French, and with their entrenched forces ending up getting clobbered, and the French and their allied forces ended up fleeing the battlefield, and in doing so, lost a number of nobles to death and capture. It was a complete disaster at exactly the wrong time. The loss the French suffered here meant that Henry did not have to continually fight fires across his lands in Wales, England, and France. The French were not done, though. The expeditionary force was mustered from Brittany and Normandy. According to the chroniclers, it consisted of 600 bowmen, 1,200 lightly armored sergeants, which these are effectively lightly armored cavalrymen, who were support troops to the tanks of the medieval period that we call knights. Finally, there was 800 other fighting men, probably including knights in that grouping. These troops arrived in Wales on 32 ships to Milford Haven, a small port on the south coast of Pembrokeshire. This level of troop was actually more than what they had sent to the Scots in 1385, if those numbers are accurate. So there was no doubt that they were taking this seriously. Marking this further was the type of men who were leading the French contingent on this expedition. Among them was Jean de Rue from Breton, a marshal of France. Now this position was the equivalent of the head of the army. There were actually only two marshals in all of France at the time, and in fact, Marshal of France is still a current position and usually given to people who are seen to be sort of the head of the military, kind of like a, a president or something along that line, and was still in use going back even into World War II. Deroux 
was an old Orlean loyalist serving the Duke of Orleans as Marshal of the Duke's forces, so his promotion at the same time the family was on the ascendancy was hardly surprising. Joining de Rue in Wales was the master of crossbowmen, Jean de Hangest. De Hangest is less well known as he was the lord of Hugenville, an area on the coast of France around Normandy. He had been the chamberlain to the king and had served as an Orleanist loyalist for most of his life. His reasons for his current position was likely due to his skill in siege warfare, something of great importance in Wales, which is littered with castles at this stage, and in all reality, most medieval warfare ended up being at some point about sieges. The final major leader to accompany them was Robert de la Rousse, another Orleanist loyalist who would serve the king's household as advisor and chamberlain and as the provost of Paris and governor of the province of Normandy. All three, in other words, were key men in the 15th century structure of French power and had a lot of military experience between them. So it would seem that the Orleanists were trying to make up for their lack in the year previous by giving Glyndur and the Welsh troops talent to take the war to the English. The French, unfortunately, did not live up to those lofty goals, and right from the outset it was a measure of how bad they would have it in Wales overall. We have two major sources for the account of this expedition. The first one we're going to talk about is the Chronicle of St. Denis. This was an account of their expedition, which was part of an official history of medieval France. It was a document not dissimilar to the Chronicles of the Princes in Wales or the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, wherein it was kept, and typically the writers were monks. And, of course, because of that, they had their own bent, be it religious or political, and their ideas at times would be very different from those in power and there was claims amongst some of the historians that they kind of had it out for the nobility at this point in time. So their point of view will not be overly pleasant, if I'm honest. When the French arrived in Wales, they were to take part in raids and to capture key English-held towns in southwest Wales. As the Allies moved away from Milford Haven, they continued to raid and pillage lands from Milford to Haverford West, some nine miles to the north of the southwest port. Without siege engines at that point, the fighting around Haverford West was a mess. The French and the Welsh lost troops and inflicted about 40 casualties on the English, but they were not able to take the castle and thus had to move on. The combined forces then took to Picton, moving south to Tenby, ravaging the land around the town, putting the English who lived around that town to flight. As they arrived at Tenby, though, the walled fortress castle there was something of a different matter. At some point around this time, two forces rejoined one another, because at this point we actually do have siege engines involved in this particular battle. And with Tenby being some 20 miles away from Haverford, that would have been quite the march to get troops there quickly, and likely it would have taken a few, at least a few days. The Allies continued to destroy surrounding communities in the area, 
which shows that there was still a lot of hostility in the area. And of course, Pembroke had been in the marches for a very long time at this stage and was increasingly settled by non-Welsh immigrants coming to the fertile lands facing the British Channel and the Irish Sea. Interestingly, there is no record of an attack on Pembroke Castle at this stage, likely meaning they moved inland and away from the coast as they landed on their way to Tenby. At some point during this siege, the Allies spotted English ships, likely coming from Bristol, to reinforce the town, leading to the French troops, according to this chronicle, fleeing in panic and abandoning their siege weapons and grounding and burning their ships that had brought them to Wales. This, of course, goes back to the idea that the chronicle is not unbiased, as we commented on, and there may be an issue with some politicking rather than the facts on the ground. But as we have few other sources to go on, it is hard to know exactly what happened here. And as we'll discuss in a bit, it's hard to know if this attack ever happened. Tenby Castle itself would be very difficult to take as it actually faces water on three sides. While today, when you look at it, there is quite a lot of sand around the castle. There would have likely have been more water in the area and likely that neck of land that squirrels out to it would have been cut off and it would have been very difficult for anybody trying to assault the castle at that point. And a relief force could very quickly and easily arrive if there's no other naval opposition to deal with that threat, which meant that there would be little point trying to take the castle at that stage. If there was a significant enough force, or at least the rumor of it, it would be understandable that troops would have fled in quick succession, abandoning things that were not going to move easily over the rough Welsh terrain. Another account of the expedition by Angerand de Montstrelet seemed to disagree with this whole story, as in that account the French only joined up with the Welsh at Tenby and did not attack either the castle or the town. The English themselves only note the whole thing in this regard, that they had burned 15 French ships around this time. In fact, there's no actual record of where these ships were held or possibly at. The chronicler, however, points out that no English followed the Welsh or French, and that the Allies fled to the next village at St. Clear's. When they arrived, they then forced the village to surrender. The people of the village then said that they would commit to Glyndwr's cause if he took the major town of Camarthen. The march north and east continued as they arrived at Camarthen. The fortified town had been the site of a number of battles to this point, being sacked in 1403 by Glyndwr himself. The fact that the Welsh had never sought to hold this area shows that areas in the southwest and southeast were much more difficult to hold than to raid. Many of the areas Glyndwr did hold were in the mountains and hills and farms rather than the English settlements, and in medieval warfare in this period, claiming hearts and minds was not a massive priority. Another vicious battle ensued in Camarthen. The Allies took the town, and the townspeople negotiated a settlement where no more lives would be lost, and at this point, it would be good to note once again that the strategy in the South was clearly one of terror rather than conquest. Whether the Welsh wanted to keep this stronghold or not is up for debate, but the French, on the other hand, were of the position that they didn't need to hold it, and instead just raided it, pillaged it, and tried to destroy it, for lack of a better option. 
If you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready-to-eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II, and people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts. And after they sacked the town, tore down its defenses again, and then after burning it some, they moved on to take on Cardigan, who, fearing the destruction that they had seen, capitulated without a fight. At this point, having wandered around southwest Wales on a pillage fest, the French ended their formal operations and many of their nobility returned to France, likely having felt that they had done their duty to the Welsh. In the Monstrelet account... A lot of this same information differs after Camarthen. In his account, the French then marched east with their Welsh allies, first to the site of Arthur's legendary round table, which, or at least those with Arthurian ideals, have postulated would be Caerleon, which is miles away from where they had gone in the Saint-Denis account. The French and Welsh forces in this account, the French and Welsh in this account, eventually raided their way to Worcester. Here on the western stretches of England and on the other side of Hereford from Wales, they apparently met Henry IV at last. Camped between two hills, neither side looking willing to attack the other, they spent eight days staring across the valley 
looking longingly at the other, but not doing a whole lot. It ended when Henry took his forces back to Worcester, forcing the French and Welsh troops to abandon the field due to either starvation or lack of supplies. While there have been some ideas to present this as factual, I struggle to see why the French would land in Milford Haven just to travel over land such a distance to strike a blow against Henry. Why face him on his own land and in his own territory? Why were the French so ill-equipped to handle a campaigning season for more than a couple of months? By November of 1405, they had fled Wales to a hero's welcome back home. Historian Gideon Bro postulates that the reason for the assault in the southwest over the better-held areas in the north may have been motivated by the Orleanist desire for revenge, because the area around Pembroke had been given to the former Queen of England, Isabella, the Queen of Richard II. When Henry took power, he immediately divided these lands up amongst his favorites. So, burning and pillaging there might make some rather Machiavellian sense, if not a lot of strategic sense. Personally, if I'm Glyndur, this is where I might have doubted my ally and their willingness to take the fight to the English. Terrorizing random towns and generally being a nuisance to the king's pocketbook and defenses were not really helpful strategy in bringing an end to the war. In fact, I would argue that it did little more than enrich some Frenchmen and avoided the one thing the Welsh really needed— a big victory over the English. One that would put the final stamp on the war, and one that would finally bring Henry IV to the bargaining table. On the other hand, if the other chronicle is correct rather than the Saint-Denis one, then what we have is we have a situation where the French just didn't want to take the risk of a loss. They didn't want to be put in a position where they couldn't win a fight against Henry. And Henry positioned himself in such a way to avoid any sort of entanglement that would see him in a loss. Again, I go back to my contention that I have a hard time understanding why they would have done this. Because why would you give your enemy the chance to dictate terms? The chance to dictate where the battle would be fought? Surely to goodness, you could go around him and attack the town itself or send some forces in to raid it and try and force him into a confrontation. The reality of it is, is there's a wide open area of southern England staring in front of them if that's what they wanted to do. I also find it hard to believe that they couldn't feed their forces, considering this is also the breadbasket of England. Hereford actually is fairly well known for having a great amount of grain and supplies at that time. That's the reason why generally the English troops preparing to invade Wales kind of met there, because it was easy to get supplies from the local villagers, townsfolk, and farmers. But again, going back to the basic situation, much like the Battle of Shrewsbury, this is a battle that the enemy has decided for you. So again, this is where I struggle to accept that version of events. I think the Chronicle of Saint-Denis, even though it's a hostile chronicle at this point, is still presenting an idea about this that makes some sense to me. It shows that the Welsh weren't really dictating what was being done or where it was being done. As much the French were controlling things as anything. And if I'm Owen, I'm very uncomfortable in this situation. 
Because all of a sudden now, instead of preparing for taking on Henry and defeating him in open warfare, which is what having a French force gives you the ability to do, you end up basically running around pillaging lands that you're hoping to conquer, eventually, I would hope, and lands that you need, because the Southwest is a breadbasket for whales. That's why the Normans conquered it first, because that's where food, supplies, gold, bronze, everything that they need to run things in Wales really does come out of that area of the South. And to give that up in a period of time, by the way, when effectively the Welsh don't have a lot of funding, don't have a lot of money, don't have the ability to do much. We've already seen with Llewellyn the Last, for example, that controlling the North is not enough. You need the South, and you need the Southwest specifically, although I would argue that Glamorgan is a very important area as well, for similar reasons. And all of these things, plus the access to the Bristol Channel and to the Irish Sea, continue to be important. The fact that there's no French Navy there actually defending their own landing forces also is kind of a peculiar situation, particularly when you consider how strong of a force they've sent and the people they've sent over. These are important people. You would have thought the French would have been in position to protect themselves. And of course, at this time, much like many times after this, the English have better naval capabilities. But the French also have supporters in places like Italy, in places like Spain, who are very good at navigating, very good at, even at this time, in their shipbuilding and naval capabilities, who could have assisted them. And that's another thing I've noticed in this particular situation, is that they didn't bring the Allies over. They didn't bring anybody else with them. So you have this expeditionary force that comes over, doesn't do very much, doesn't accomplish anything really in the long run, and it all comes apart because the French basically consider their honor met, the alliance sealed, and go home. And that had to have been a bitter pill for Owen, and one can argue it has long-standing consequences from here on out. Owen likely at this stage was preparing for the inevitable. Confront Henry and take him from, at least take from him, enough blood and treasure to force a settlement. Whatever shape it would be at this point would be anyone's guess. Certainly the Chronicle of St. Denis seems to show that the French goals were different enough that they might leave on a whim rather than keep up the pressure. One thing that could be not missed by anyone is that the chances of Welsh independence were now on a downward trend after this moment. And in another year, it would then be obvious to everyone that the Welsh were on a downward spiral. And unfortunately, this is where everything starts to go on a downhill slide and we end up in a bad place as opposed to a good place if you were a supporter of Welsh independence and the Glyndor Rebellion specifically. But... There is still a long way to go before we get there, but at least as of right now, that's where we end up. So on that note, thank you all for listening. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns, you can reach me at the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com or talk to me on Twitter at Welsh History Pod or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. And you can also join our Patreon community, which helps 
fund the podcast, specifically things like books and equipment that's needed to record this particular podcast. Thank you, everybody who supports me. Thank you for those of you that are listening. I appreciate all your support, no matter what it is. And until next time, everyone, take care. Have a great day. Bye. This has been a Distractions Media production. And for everything we do, check out distractionsmedia.com. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world, from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts.